Welcome to the Game Plan Podcast with Judah Newby and Brian Perkins, breaking down all things Seahawks. Well, the Seahawks get their first win of the season, 24-13 over the Dallas Cowboys. Never a doubt about this one. Seahawks a better team from start to finish. Optimism reigns supreme in the city of Seattle, the city of champions, as the Seahawks uh, are, they improved to one and two. Alongside Brian Perkins, I'm Jude Anubi, and uh, Perkins, this was a scoreless game after one quarter. The Seahawks put up 17 points in the second quarter, finishing very strong the last five minutes of the first half, and I think that's kind of where the game ended up being determined is when Seattle was able to pull away there at the end of the first half. Yeah, no, for sure, and it, it was good to see them be aggressive there and uh, use timeouts to uh, get the ball back, right? Towards exactly. the end of the half, I was kind of worried that they might not do that and just kind of rest on their laurels a little bit because, you know, Pete isn't necessarily the most aggressive coach when it comes to certain game situations, so it was kind of cool to see that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. That that final five minutes of the first half, uh, how long has it been? It feels like an eternity. It probably hasn't been that long. Going into halftime, feeling good about the Seahawks. Like, I always feel like it's third and fourth quarter. Going into halftime, feeling like jubilated and excited is kind of a foreign feeling a little bit. It was cool. Yeah, it was. A, it's a good point. Uh, Dallas got a field goal, and then Seattle responded with a seven-play, 75-yard drive. And, you know, they took that timeout, I believe, before third and nine when they were at the 48-yard line, or that's when they actually got to the two-minute warning. And so here they are facing a third and nine. It's currently a seven to three game, third and nine, two minute warning right out of the break. They dial up the perfect route, a simple route, but dialed it up against the perfect coverage. Russell Wilson, 52 yard touchdown pass to Tyler Lockett. Beautiful. Tyler Lockett uh, gets the extension this offseason so far has lived up to that. You know, he's a guy that's had to step up, right? Baldwin kind of sort of played in game one, but uh, was already dealing with an injury. He goes down with another injury. And Lockett right now is on pace for 1,000-plus yards and about 16 touchdowns. So, I mean, this is a guy that um, has really stepped up when this team has needed him. And considering how the rest of the receiving core has been not non-existent, but has has not been consistent, to say the least, it's good to see T-Lock step up when they need him. First touchdown for the Seahawks was a bullet from Russell Wilson to Jaron Brown, 16 yards over the middle or a seam route really from Jaron Brown. It was a perfect route again, perfect placement. Um, and that ended up capping off a drive that went 10 plays for 64 yards and lasted 352. I bring that up only in this sense. I mean, it goes back to Seattle's running game. It was pretty ineffective against Chicago. It had some moments against the bears. It had some moments against Denver, but pretty ineffective against Denver too. When it was all said and done, looking at the stat sheet there clearly, clearly was, an unapologetic effort to run the ball in this football game. And I tell you what, Perkins, though, when you look at the yards per carry and things like that, it wasn't impressive. Uh, it was still good to see the commitment to the run because that's what they've built themselves around. That's what they've stated their goal is going to be. So at least they attempted it without apologizing to anybody in this game. First of all, it was good to see Brown make up for his silly penalty running into the kicker, by the way, that, right. that gifted the Cowboys a first down. So that was cool to see him catch his first touchdown as a Seahawk. But, uh, yeah, I honestly, don't feel, I don't feel much better about the run game today than I did, uh, you know, before yesterday's matchup, outside of the fact that Chris Carson wasn't gassed. So that was good to see. 
Uh, those he didn't. Maybe he must have. They must have really limited the special team snaps for him uh, because they That's gave so weird. They, they gave him the ball, and once Penny fumbled the ball on the handoff with yeah. uh, with Wilson, he was done. I mean, he he barely saw the field, and um, you know Carson, you're right. They were, or you know, it was good to see them establish the run. But if you look at analytics. Carson was successful running the ball 37% of the time. They averaged less than two yards a carry on first down, which does not set you up well for the rest of the series. But late in the game, I'll tell you what, it was third and long. They needed Carson to make something happen, and guess what? He did, and that sealed the deal against Dallas, uh, him running for that, what was it, a 10-yard or 11-yard uh, scamper for first down? I think that run was, it may have been the play of the game for me from uh, from Chris Carson. An eighteen yard or an eleven yard run 11. on third and eleven. Yeah, to be able to uh, to force Dallas to take their final timeout. Yeah, absolutely, that was huge. And here's my take: I'm actually am encouraged by this because I could care less about the production. It was the play calling. That's all I really cared about was the play calling. The production that'll come later in the season. You know, hopefully, uh, if we're talking about this same level of production in October, I might be worried. But I needed to see the commitment to running it on first down and following that up with a run on second down. I mean, there's something to be said for grinding out drives. I mean, they ended up out-possessing the Cowboys by six minutes. So you like runs on, on second. Let's say it's second and nine. You yep. like them to run the ball there. Yep. Yep. Really? I do. Okay. I absolutely do. So you know you, why? You're okay with third and six, third and seven. I absolutely am. Absolutely. Because Russell Wilson can convert on those downs. You know, how many times have we seen the Seahawks fail third and twos and third and threes? It's the same thing. To me, the difference between third and two and third and six, honestly, not that big of a difference anymore in the NFL these days. Teams aren't running on third and three very much anyway. They're throwing. Seattle always has trouble pass protecting anyway. How many times do we see run on first down to get to second and eight, followed up by a play action sack or roll them out sack or some type of dumb ass play? Stay downhill, stay aggressive, get a hat on a hat, knock somebody off the ball, turn it into third and four, and now you've got some some ways to work with. Third and four, how, that's a that's a four-yard out route to Nick Vanette. That's a button hook to Brandon Marshall if he could catch the ball. There are a lot of ways. Don't be afraid of third and manageable. And I don't think the Seahawks were afraid of third and manageable in this game. There was no sense of, oh my God, second and nine, got to go for the sticks. Don't do that. Second and nine. Let's dial up our best power run play and make this third and four, third and five. And when they did that, they converted. And you look at the team third down numbers, and they reflected that. Third down efficiency for Seattle in this game. They end up finishing seven of 16. And Brandon Marshall had two third down first quarter drops in this game. They could have very well easily been 10 of 16 on third down in this game. And so in my opinion, especially when they've gone out of their way to construct the roster as they have, the play calling needs to complement the roster construction. It did in this game and for a team that's learning how to rediscover its identity. We're building from the ground up. Might as well be antithetical to the rest of the NFL. Might as well be countercultural and rediscover what it means to be Seahawk football. If that means getting two yards and clouds of dust on first down, Let's call a different run play again and make it third and manageable and then convert the damn thing. Now you've had the ball for two minutes. Defense is depressed. Now you can divide, get your play action seam route to Vanette. You've got something on offense rather than second and eight play action sack because, come on, you've got to agree with me there. We've seen that way too much. Well, 
I don't know necessarily about play action because Wilson statistically is extremely successful in play action. But I get where you're coming from. The the pass pro was better in this game too. By He's the successful way. when he throws it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. You don't see the but, stats but when at, he doesn't throw it. Yeah, yeah. And you look at him on play action. I mean, we, you, we all know how good Russell Wilson is when he's able to have time on play action, right? Like, he's incredibly effective. And I get where you're coming from. And I do agree that if you're going to construct the roster in a way that is conducive to run the football, and then you run Chris Carson a total of, what, 13 times through two games, that's mind-boggling, right? Where I am, am still not feeling very encouraged is the fact that they were playing the Dallas Cowboys. They were playing a team that does not have a very good defense. They were able to take advantage of those long third. I I still consider third and seven to be a a long third down situation. That's converting a third and long. Yeah. Third and seven is long. I agree. You know, and there were, they were in that situation multiple times. Russ was dialed in pass protection was a lot better. You know, Russ played well in spite of his receivers, Brandon Marshall, as you mentioned, not helping him out, <laughs> you know, uh, in especially in the first quarter. There's some really frustrating drops when they were moving and cooking on offense and looking good. I just don't see this being effective when you're not babying a lead late in the fourth quarter, when you have to come back, when you're going up against a team that can actually score the football like the Rams or a team with a good defensive front. Is this team going to be able to emulate that success against an actual quality opponent on the road? I'm not convinced of it. I don't think they were effective running the ball, and I don't think that long-term it's going to be successful if you run the ball 36 times a game. I just don't see it working for them. I think they were effective running the ball, but you have to look for the effectiveness outside of the stats. You have to look at the time of possession. You have to look at the average length of third down because those are direct results of being able to keep running the football. And the numbers were skewed a little bit, right, because they did have the big lead in the fourth. And they needed to run the football in order to just, you know, even if it's three and out and they end up punting, you're happy with that, right? Because you took a minute and 20, minute 30 off the, the converse clock. to that. The converse to that is something that we need to bring up more often. And it's about staying aggressive offensively. Now, I had this conversation with my friend the other day. When you have a lead in the fourth quarter, the objective there on offense is to do what your team does best. So, for instance, the LA Rams. They've got a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter. What are they doing? They're throwing. They're stepping their foot on your neck. It's what they did to Seattle last December. It's what they've done to countless opponents. That's what Sean McVay does. He stays aggressive. Pedal to the metal. Seattle does not have that strength. They don't do it. It's not in Pete Carroll's philosophy, in my opinion. I don't think it is either. I mean, it's not in his, and and it's certainly not in any of his offensive coordinators, which is... You know, that's a marriage, obviously. It is in McVay's. So, but what in the fourth quarter then, I'm not I'm not going to say universally it's a good idea to run the ball in the fourth quarter with a lead because how many times have we seen teams go too conservative and lose it? To me, you play to your team's strengths and you trust to execute your team's strengths when you have a lead in the fourth quarter. And whether or not running the football is a strength of this team, it's certainly probably, it's not anything special in the NFL, but it might be a strength of this team. We'll see. I know Pete Carroll wants it to be a strength of this team. So week three, your home game against a defense that you can run the ball against or at least attempt to, to me that was the right philosophy as well. Fourth quarter, grind it out, run the football. The only play that had me scratching my head in those those final drives, because I, I get it. I get why you want to move clock, and you're up two scores at that point. And so I, you know, if you're up one score, I, I would disagree with, with the idea of, of, you know, being okay with punting on third down in that scenario because you're, you are giving them an opportunity. But when there's 
two minutes and one seconds on the clock, and you're going to the two-minute warning regardless, throw the football. It was like second. They, they took a delay of game. It was like second and 14, and I was like, gosh, dang it. That was a chance right there for maybe a play action because they were clearly still keyed in on the run on that play if you look at the way Dallas approached that. Mm-hmm. I was like, Pete, what are you doing? Or a screen. Yeah, something. Just something to, yeah, j- just to uh, kind of get away from that aggression. But, That's a good point. You know, uh, overall, you know, it's their first 100-yard rusher in two seasons. It's their first running back with 30, 30 or more attempts since 2015. I mean, they really did get back to old-school Pete Carroll football. And when you look at Russell Wilson's attempt total, it was more rookie season Russell Wilson than it is seventh-year Russell Wilson. 16 of 26 for 192 yards, but the two touchdowns, yeah, that's a carbon copy of some of his rookie year games. Yeah, he looked confident, though, didn't he? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he really struggled last week, and, and, and he looked good. And what I'll come back to is something we cannot forget, even though Russell is a veteran. This current Seahawk 2018 team, it's much different from 2017, much different from 2016, and, you know, I don't have to bring up seasons past. This team in particular has to rediscover its identity. It needs to rediscover how to win games. It needs to rediscover how to finish games. It needs to rediscover their formula for success. They don't have it yet. So to assume that, you know, there's just one way to win a game and they've just got to find it, you know, I honestly, I feel better about the way that they won this game than if they would have won like a 34-31 shootout because they seemed to execute the formula they desire. And at least they did that and won the football game. And that's all I care about because now you can build off that. It's only September. It is. It's only week three. If, but if now that that's been affirmed and you can go, here's the exhibit of what it looked like for us to win a game the way we want to win a game. Now let's take that forward with us into week four against Arizona, a gettable team. You know, yeah. week, week five against St. Lu- against L.A. You're not going to beat L.A. throwing the ball 40 times. Hate to break it to you. If you're going to beat L.A., it's by being somehow able to run a miracle. The ball. Oh, a miracle. Okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But you should go in. You should be going into that game. I know we'll talk about it later in the week, but you should be going into that game, hopefully at 500. The concern, Judah, that I have, and you're right, you can build off this and you need to still be more efficient and effective as an offense because that point total, 24, ain't going to be enough most of this season. You're not winning a lot of football games scoring 24 points. Seattle's defense. <laughs> Exhibit A, Denver. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Seattle's defense – Against Denver was was hit or miss, but they forced a lot of turnovers. We saw it again in this game. Three turnovers. I mean, that's eight turnovers the Seahawks have forced through three games. But offensively, you know, I just I, I look at it and I go, okay, you know, you, you did what you needed to do in this game, and each game is situational and different, obviously, depending on how the script of the game goes. Um, but you are going to have to be more efficient against better teams. Uh, the Cowboys are not a good football team. I mean, they're not. They're, what, six wins this year? I mean, the way we've seen them play, they're not very good. But it was good to see Seattle at home beat a team that clearly they should have. They were the better team. Well, now they got to go on the road and beat a team that they should beat. Yeah. And it looks like Josh Rosen might be playing. He, he got some action Sunday in the loss to the Chicago Bears. But, you know, it's going to be a, a good test. Going on the road is always a good test. Ironically, you know, they just played the Bears in Week 2, and the Cardinals just played the Bears, so there will be plenty of interesting tape uh, from from that standpoint on the Cardinal offense based on the Seahawks already facing the Bear defense as well. So, you know, it'll be interesting to, to to find out what this team is made of. But if they can get a road win and get up to 500, it's still a bit of a disappointing start. You'd think you could take one of the close games in Chicago or be Denver. nice to be 3-1, but yeah. Given the schedule. But yeah. you know what? It, it really, it, it, 
if you can win this game and get to two and two before the Rams, you know, well, it's a with, decent place to be. With the Garoppolo injury, all of a sudden you're looking and you're going, wow, okay, maybe that's two wins against yeah, the Niners. That really changes the division dynamic, doesn't it? It really does. And I mean, the Rams, I. At this point, you know, there's a lot of football left and a lot of potential injuries out there for every team, but the Rams look like the best team in football, arguably. Oh, yeah. Um, so, and their point differential says that, by the way, through three weeks. Incredible. So I don't know if you're really, um, I mean, obviously you don't want to give up on the division, but you're probably, if you're looking towards the playoffs, you're looking towards a wild card. But how bad the Cardinals have looked, the Garoppolo injury has certainly changed the dynamic of the conference. And all of a sudden you have a chance to sweep those two teams and, you know, you never know what's going to happen. If you're able to do that, maybe you get to nine, ten wins somehow, and you know you're in the you're at least in the hunt. You're Gotta in the give wild yourself card a hunt. chance. Last thing, Earl Thomas. We know his complicated relationship with the Seahawks, and for what it's worth, the Cowboys. <laughs> um, pretty amazing, you know. Just flashing back to that December game last year, and and showing the tape of him going up to Jason Garrett in the tunnel, saying, "Come get me," and then of course all the. Uh, you know, politicking, looking for a contract. What he said this week after missing practice, he said, I'm looking out for myself. I don't care if I'm feeling, you know, a headache, any little damn thing. I'm not going to be practicing. And now what kind of position does this put him in with the organization? For a guy that they're still relying on on Sundays, Ross Tucker was on Jim Rome this morning saying, I think it's time for Seattle to part ways with him because, I mean, you can't be preaching, you know, leadership, energy, enthusiasm, and then have a guy – say he has a headache and he can't practice two days because he's looking out for himself. Yeah, that was Percy Harvin's job. <laughs> Migraine Percy. Sorry. Um, Had to throw that shot in there. Yeah. Not to... Uh, Is yeah. that what you think? Do you think they should part ways with him? No. I think that... If they, I, it, mean, I mean, it's so... It's really hard to say. If they gave him a contract extension, he's practicing. Right? If yeah. they pay him, he is going to practice if he has a headache, quote unquote. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I get it. Because but, that's the point, right? Is that? And I understand this is not, you know, specific to the Seahawks. And and as NFL fans, we have a tendency to side on players' rights over executives' rights. There's no empathy for executives. There's no empathy for GMs. There's empathy for players because of what they're putting their bodies to. But I'm just putting this out there because I think the conversation has to be had. Whatever happened to the value of getting a guy to sign the contract? Whatever happened to that? He put his name to paper and signed a contract. And he's playing. He has three picks this year. Yeah. I I don't understand what you're asking. Why does John Schneider feel like he has to give him an extension? So should all contracts be guaranteed then? Well, I mean, no, but Earl Thomas signed the contract. Mm -hmm. So we should honor the contract. I I think that... Why have we all of a sudden assumed that players not only deserve, but it's an outrage when they don't get a new deal? You put your name to paper. Your agent. I mean, my point is, if you're in John Schneider's shoes... You worked your ass off to sign that deal four years ago. You shouldn't just sacrifice that win that you had. I mean, you did your job well. You shouldn't just, I mean, if you close a sale as a businessman, you should expect to reap the rewards of that sale for the duration of that deal. 
if the if the client comes back and says, ah, well, we want to back out, you know, of the last year, unless you can give us a better deal, I would feel gypped. And if you still have the power as the executive to not let that happen, it's within your best interest not to let that happen. Hmm. I think it's a big, there's a big picture conversation that I feel is warranted. I know it's a case-by-case basis. Le'Veon's different, Antonio Brown's different, Old Thomas certainly is different, and, and there's so much different little nuance to culture in there. But I, I'm fascinated by the, the way that we have just decided to give the players universally the right to get a new deal when they had already signed something. couple things. First of all, you can't compare a business contract to an athlete's contract because their career can literally end like that, right? So I, I do think that's a bit of a false equivalency. I think that we want to compare what athletes go through or what athletes' contracts or their day in the life is like to the real world, but it's to me it's not the real world at all. It's, it's a completely different realm that they are living in. Secondly, um, as I have my brain fart here in the middle of this uh, conversation, I get I get where you're coming from about about wanting to honor a contract and wanting to wanting you know wanting these guys to to go out there and to play. But if you're Earl Thomas and you're 29 years old and you are still playing at a high level and you've seen your brothers around you end their careers because of stingers and because of was was Cam's a stinger too? I can't even remember what his what his career ending injury was. Cliff Averill, you know, Richard Sherman tears his Achilles. You know, this is a guy that I get where he's coming from because in sports, it is pretty uncommon that you play till the last year of your contract and don't get extended. And that's not even with the players. That's extending to the coaches as well, by the way. What do they call it when a coach is uh on the final year of his contract? It's like a, like a, he's like a lame duck, like a lame duck coach, right? He's the final year of the contract. The team's not going to renew him because the team is essentially saying, mm, we don't know if we really believe in you long term, right? That's what they're saying. So if you're Earl Thomas and you're making now what is severely undervalued compared to a lot of players in his position, and he's clearly still the best player at his position or one of the three best players at his position in all of football, I get why he says, I'm going to look out for myself right now. I'm on the final year of this contract, and I play one of the most physical, brutal sports on the planet. And then lastly, why should players respect a contract if a team doesn't? Teams will cut you in a heartbeat if anything happens to you whatsoever. So why should players give a crap? Why are players the ones that are expected to honor a contract when the team doesn't? You want to fully guarantee contracts in the NFL? Sure, then you can expect players to do the same. But until that time, I'm sorry. It's hard to decide, especially in the NFL. Especially in the, in the NFL. The most physical sport, mainstream sport we have in this country. These guys are raking in billions of dollars every year, the NFL is. And they're not going to guarantee contracts. And they're going to cut you in an instant if you stub your big toe. I mean, the, the, the NFL is littered with guys that we're going to make a roster, that we're going to make a team, and, oh, no, they break a finger, they're out. They're done. The team doesn't have time for them anymore. It's a heartless league. And why should the players be dedicated to a team that isn't dedicated to them? That's your best counter-argument. Pay him. That's your best counter-argument. <laughs> and, and, well, well, here's the thing, though. Yeah. Or trade him. Yes, one or the because other. Because if, yes. if, yeah. ex- if you're paying him 
at the sacrifice of your team's financial well-being, you're not doing your job. John Schneider's job is to keep his team in the best financial well-being with the best product possible. I'm not saying that that eliminates an Earl Thomas extension. I'm saying, you know, maybe you trade him. And to be honest, there's a chance he gets traded to the Cowboys this week now that they played the Cowboys. There is. You know, um, I, I, I'll, I, I got to say, though, I... Uh, Yeah. He's still playing at a very high level. I, I, yeah, that's I, fun. That's great. I, I don't I, know how you don't, I don't understand know. him, but we'll, we'll see. I don't think they will. I think they're going to trade him if I was a betting man. I would probably say they're going to trade him as well. It was great to see, though, on his interception. I think it was the second one. Bobby Wagner's the one that makes the hit, that forces the ball in the air. Earl Thomas comes down with the interception. It's the two, their two best defensive players by a mile coming together. They also, by the way, tied for lead in tackles in the game with seven. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was pretty cool to see because those are really the two leftovers, right? The two holdovers from from a once great defense. But uh, quick shout out to Bradley McDougal. I thought he played so well. Really good game. Really, really well. And even even Flowers is improving. Yeah, he is. Reps by reps. He was put in a tough spot, so it's good to see him and he's confident out there. So Kendricks had a great rush on Prescott. Um, Dell Fortune incompletion. He also, I mean, thank God Zeke lost his awareness where he was on the field because that would have been a touchdown. Um, Doug Baldwin losing it on the sidelines. Yeah. That was pretty fascinating. Zeke averaged, what, like eight yards a carry? Yeah, and then he said he played terribly, and that's why his team lost. I mean, that fumble completely turned that game around. Yeah. I get why he would be pissed at himself. But he had a great statistical game outside of that. But um, What a bizarre, bizarre game. But yeah. I mean, it's pretty cool to see a lot of people are saying Earl Thomas's heart might not be in it, this or that. I mean, that guy is, is freaking balling, man. He's, he's balling. He's balling out of his mind. I guess you don't need practice. <laughs> Allen Iverson is just salivating right now. He's uh, like, I told you. I told you. Whose house? Told you guys. All right. He's Brian Perkins. I'm Jude Danubi. Later in the week, we'll preview Seahawks and Cardinals week four.